Hello, and welcome back to The Culture We Speak. I'm your host, Diana Latimer Hearn, and I'd like to wish you a happy Mother's Day. On today's episode, guest Taja Sparkman and I discuss motherhood, mompreneurships, maternal health, and homeschooling. From the flavorful foods we eat to the rhythm of the beats we keep, our hair and clothes define what it means to be sheep. For centuries, onlookers have been captivated by our mystique and every aspect of our being that makes us unique. This is the culture we speak. So today I'm here with Taja Sparkman, who is a wife and homeschooling mama to three beautiful brown girls. She is a childbirth coach and the owner of Mo at Home, where she provides virtual coaching classes and workshops to help empower birthing people. Taja is very passionate about parenthood and raising awareness of systemic racism, especially when it comes to health and rights of black and brown birthing people. Using creative themes and lessons she designs herself, Taja and her husband are dedicated to creating a foundation of cultural awareness and good citizenship for their family. In addition to childbirth coaching and homeschooling, Taja also freelances writing, and editing projects. In her free time, she enjoys spending time with family and friends, laughing, reading, and writing poetry. And I'm just gonna go ahead and add, that's her voice at the beginning of the spoken word for the culture we speak, so I'm already a fan. So Taja, thank you for being a guest and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, I'm so excited to be here today. So I'm gonna dive right in with some questions about, I guess our recent meeting, honestly. Yeah. We connected online some time ago through a mutual friend, um, yeah. but I had the pleasure of meeting you in person at Northwestern University, which was awesome. Yes. And you you um, allowed me to eat some Giordano's because I couldn't eat the whole thing, and I was happy to have someone to send the rest of that lovely pizza <laughs> home with. So <laughs> yeah. It was our pleasure. <laughs> right? That was important right there. I need to get that out there. But um, we connected at Northwestern's Title IX event, and so obviously looking at Title IX legislation and the changes that have happened historically for women, particularly, I know that we talk about this a lot in light of sports, but how does Title IX sort of relate to you, your family, the work that you do? Well, first, the event was amazing. It was a great experience. I didn't grow up in the sports world, so this is all new to me, but I have okay. daughters that my oldest is a dancer and a gymnast, and we're moving into that competition level, so it's getting serious over here. And then my middle daughter does parkour, and so right now she does it for fun, but it is mixed gender and so like even in her classes you know it's girls and boys in there and then my youngest is just like she wants to do it all dance football soccer <laughs> okay. she's like just give it to me and so it, it's a different experience for me because I was give me my pen give me my books leave me alone and so I'm aware of like discrimination and you know the things that as women we have to go through, but to see it on the sports level. And it's not enough to just be like, oh, well, we have a men's basketball team and a women's basketball team. But like just the discrimination and the things that women athletes have to go through. And you know this because you're an athlete, but like just like when you show up to the table and all the guys got like big seats and you got an itty bitty seat and you can't yeah. reach the table. And it's like, it's not enough to just have a seat at the table, but you have to make sure that your seat is equal to those around you. And also like with gymnastics, I know at one of the events, sexual harassment was brought up. And so there was that big thing with the U.S. gymnastics team and, and their doctor. And so just making sure that in addition to telling my girls that like, hey, whatever your activities and passions are, like, let's pursue them. 100% you can do it, that I'm also equipping them to say along the way, there are going to be people and there are going to be organizations and rules and policies that are going to try to stop you simply because you're a girl and they feel like you don't belong. Or in my, my dancer's case, that your sport isn't a real sport. And so yeah. it's somehow like unworthy, but you know the effort that you're putting in and you know that you're training. And so make sure that Every opportunity you have, whether it's to be at an event or we're talking cash, if it leads them that way or like whatever, that you're getting what you deserve for an athlete of your caliber and, and your skill and experience and don't let anybody play you. So yes. like just being aware as a parent that like it's not enough for me to just make sure they have the opportunities, but they know how to make sure that they have the right opportunities as an athlete, just period, yeah. not as a female athlete or, you know, somehow classifying or qualifying this, uh, this idea of being an athlete, but just being an athlete, period. You have the right yeah. to so many different things because of the discrimination that happened prior to now and then obviously still exists in contemporary sports and also in educational spaces and all kinds of settings. We really have to be mindful of what we're teaching our kids. 
So when we met up at Northwestern for the Title IX event, we actually went to the screening of the Queen of Basketball together, which shared the story of Lucia Harris, which was absolutely amazing. And then I was like, I need to take this home and show it to my sons. You know, like everybody yeah. needs to see this and understand the importance of women in sports, the things that we've contributed that have been overlooked, yeah. um, that haven't been seen and haven't been celebrated and the challenges that come along with it. And so yeah. I just thank you for what you're sharing with your kids and how amazing yeah. that must be. So yeah, very eye-opening. I love that documentary. I, I came home and I was telling everybody about it. I'm like, <laughs> right? man. I'm like, do you know this woman? Like Lucia Harris, like she's awesome. She's amazing. And not only do we not know about her and another passion of mine, mental health, but like to know that like, in addition to being a woman, her mental health was also an impediment. And I just don't think that's fair because when we have the resources to give people to manage and process and cope with things, they can yeah. do wonderful and great things. Um, and my kids and I would talk about that all the time. People that I call them, gifted differently but people mm -hmm. that are gifted differently that do amazing things and then we place limits on them and then some of the people that we look up to like albert einstein you know they have they have these gifted abilities that allow them to be so brilliant because they saw the world in a different way and so all around it was just like i just felt like she just got cheated on so many levels being black being a woman being diagnosed later and not having the tools and the resources and people around her that understood her struggles to help her navigate and so I was like I couldn't give her her roses while she was alive but yeah. I make sure everybody I know knows I know right I share it far and wide as well and and I know you're mentioning gifted differently or having different abilities and things like that yeah. I I struggle with my career in terms of being a speech language pathologist, because a lot of what we do is identifying where people have a disability or they're incapable of doing something, or we feel that they are, they're less, less able than others. And I feel like yeah. that's just another perpetuation of discrimination. It's another form of separating people and forcing yeah. them into categories and having these preconceived notions about them rather than allow them, allowing them to exist in the fullness of their identity and be who they are and contribute to society in the way that they can and the way that they choose to do, just like everyone else is doing. Um, yeah. And so I think that's beautiful that you, you phrase it that way and that it's not something that we're centering in a person's identity, but that it's a piece of them and it's a part of the complex puzzle that all of us have, right? Yeah. We all have so many different pieces to us and it's like, allow us to be fully, to exist fully in our identity and to be who we are and contribute as we are in society. Yes. So check out, yeah, the queen of basketball, please go see that. Like, <laughs> so good. I love the documentary. It's amazing. It's powerful. And I think it, everyone needs to see it. Yeah. Um, so talk to me a little bit about Mo at Home. How did you get started in your journey to start your own business? It's been a long time coming. <laughs> um, I have been coaching my friends and family through their pregnancy since I was pregnant with my first daughter. So that's about 11 years ago. And just basically based off of my experience and then uh, my sisters-in-law, one of them was my belly buddy. And so they were just really helpful as a first-time pregnant person trying to navigate what was going on, just helping me, coaching me along the way, and then sharing their birth stories and just talking. So I was able to take a lot of that. And then when my friends got pregnant, pass that on to them. And mm -hmm. so I've been doing it for a while. And then the pandemic hit, and now I'm at home with the girls and we're homeschooling. And I don't know how to sit still for too long. And I think we've like talked about that. And I, I actually, I was working two part-time jobs. I quit them to stay home with the girls and it was great for a while, but then I started feeling like I needed to do more to contribute. And I just needed to have something that was for me. And I was trying to figure out what that was. And I started reflecting on what am I good at? And what has, when I'm employed, like what are my employers and my managers, what are the things, my skills that they're using for their benefit that I can use for my benefit now that I'm no longer employed? And so I was talking to, our friend Amy and she was like, you know what? Deanna is who you need to talk to. Oh no. Mind <laughs> if I can next you guys, because this is right up our alley. And and you told me, you said, you know, put out a survey um and just kind of see what people, what they need and what they want. And so I had at that point, Amy just told me to take like a spiritual gifts quiz. So I narrowed that down. Like these are my spiritual gifts. And so I just took the survey to find out like how I was using my spiritual gifts for my community and those around me. And Every single person that filled out that survey was like, when I was a first time parent, when, <laughs> when I was a parent, even now. And so I was like, okay, so 
this is the sweet spot. And I still didn't know. And a late night Google uh, popped up about um, becoming an instructor for birth workers. And then they were like, well, you have to first be a birth worker before okay. you can instruct birth workers, which it makes sense. Like you don't want to train people when you don't have your feet on the ground. So looking at like, I knew midwives and doulas and, you know, OBGYNs, but like what other things could I do and still be a stay-at-home mom and childbirth educator popped up and I'm reading the description and I was like, I've been doing this. Yeah, this is me. <laughs> this is me. I've been doing this. And so fast forward a few months, I applied for a scholarship. I was offered it and they were like, you got to start now. And so it's like, well, here we are. We're, we're doing this. Like, Because <laughs> I yeah. think I was dragging my feet. I was scared to like make it official. And so... I took, you know, I signed up for the training and then I just got started. And so now Mo at Home is here. Uh, the name comes awesome. from my my family nickname. Uh, growing up, I was called Moni. And it's kind of an ode to my grandmother and my moms and, and other women in my life, aunts and stuff that they love me. They call me Moni and they are caregivers. And so I'm stepping into this caregiver role and I want to throw back to the women that helped me get here because I care because they care like they showed me how to care for other people and so then yeah. in a nutshell so now I That's own beautiful. my own business and yeah. I coach birthing people and help them get through their worries and fears and desires and just feel empowered going into pregnancy knowing that while they can't control the outcome there are things that are out of our control that they can feel empowered to make the decisions that they need to no matter what happens I'm sure that light bulb moment was like almost like <laughs> Yes. It's such an eye opener, right? Isn't that so refreshing when you arrive at that moment of like, this is what I have been doing and this is what yeah. I meant to do. <laughs> oh man. And it was, it was just like, oh my gosh, it was right here in front of me the whole time. Like I've been doing it. How did I not see it? <laughs> but then along the way, I kept getting affirmed because I was trying to run like <laughs> Jonah in the whale. I was trying to run. Um, can understand that. Mm-hmm. And along the way, like strangers and people that know me without being prompted, they would just affirm me. And I'm like, okay, God, I hear you. <laughs> yeah, I've had that happen. And it's definitely scary when you step out of kind of the traditional role that you've known and that you've experienced your whole life and decide I'm going to go my own way and kind of forge my own path. And then you have to figure things out. And it's very scary to do that. It's almost, you know, it's like coloring outside <laughs> the lines. Um, I think it becomes more natural as you progress in this process. So hopefully it's becoming sort of a a normal thing for you now but yeah it is definitely a process so that aha moment is gold I think that's just like (laughs) the most valuable thing that can happen I love the story behind how you got started and all of the love that you've experienced in terms of um, your just upbringing and also the the period of time you've been pregnant so I guess my next question is why is black maternal health or even black and brown maternal health so important well unfortunately um, and it's it's being talked about a lot more now, but the maternal death rates in the U.S. are just abysmal. They, it is horrible. And it's not just black and brown. It's like for everyone, if you give birth in this country, there's a high risk associated with it. Sometimes that risk is fatal and, and sometimes is living a life um, and having to deal with things that you shouldn't have had to if the proper precautions and procedures had been taken and put in place in the beginning. And for Black and brown women, it's even higher. So quoting statistics found on commonwealthfund.org, new international data show the maternal mortality rate in the U.S. continues to exceed the rate in other high-income countries. In 2020, the maternal mortality rate in the U.S. was 24 deaths per 100,000 live births more than three times the rate in most other high-income countries. In the Netherlands, almost no women died from maternal complications. The U.S. maternal mortality rate is exceptionally high for Black women. It is more than double the average rate and nearly three times higher than the rate for white women. So you take something that is already higher than uh, most countries in the world, and then for a subset of that population, it's even higher. And so that is not something that I think that we should be great at here in America. Uh, So yeah, it is very uh, sad. And so a lot of it comes down to just knowing what your options are and also when to advocate for yourself. Because unfortunately, 
we live in a time where everything is a business. Schools are a business. Hospitals are a business. And so they have a bottom line and they and the decisions that they're going to make, the procedures that they're going to have in place, like they're they're coming at it from a business standpoint. And that's not always wrong. Like they are a business. You got, you got to do what you have to do. But when you're coming at it from a business standpoint and not necessarily from a maternal health care standpoint, things get lost, balls get dropped. And so what's in the best priority of the patient is not always what's considered. And then also every hospital has different things. You're going to have hospitals that are going to be more intervention based and like that's where they excel. And so those are the hospitals that you want to go to if you want to have a, a surgery. But if you're trying to deliver vaginally without surgery, that might not necessarily be where they shine. And so knowing what it is you want and what options they're going to present to you, and then making sure that your support system and just your care team is in line with that. Because when you guys are not in line, if you don't know what it is you want, and so you're being urged down a certain path, and then at some point you realize that that's not what you want, or you actually feel differently, or you're going to bump heads. And so that you're not going to feel hurt because this is what they want. Like this, this is their agenda. This is how they operate. Um, having a care team that can explain things to you. Because sometimes we don't know. So we just go along with things. I know that uh, with my first, I had postpartum bleeding and I was also breastfeeding. And the hospital I delivered at was not a breastfeeding friendly hospital. And so when I told the the doctor that I had this bleeding, he was like, well, I'm gonna give you this medicine and it'll stop it because you shouldn't still be bleeding. And he knew that I was breastfeeding. So I, it never dawned on me to ask him, is this safe to take while I was breastfeeding? Yeah. It was not. Yeah. And luckily my baby was okay, but like I had a, a seizure for a few seconds and I stopped it immediately. But when I called him to tell him that like, hey, I had this seizure and also like this medicine is not safe for my baby. Cause once I had the seizure, now I'm worried about like, oh gosh, what, what's this going to do to my baby? He told me that my options were to either continue bleeding and not take the medicine so I could breastfeed or stop breastfeeding and take the medicine so I don't bleed. Like wow. there was no in-between. And so I was like, you know what? It's time for a new doctor because yeah. that just can't be my only two options. And so I had to, I just had to advocate for myself. But I think about how many women were like, they, maybe it's because of insurance or maybe they just, they don't have anyone else or they're scared that would be pressured into giving up something that they really want to do. And now you have that guilt and then postpartum depression and anxiety is a thing. And so when your journey does not look like you thought it would, that makes you at a higher risk for postpartum depression and anxiety. And it's just a trickle down effect. Um, not properly explaining to people how to prevent getting pregnant so soon so that our bodies can heal. Like when you just kind of force something on them or give them misinformation, now they're pregnant again. And that's more trauma to the body because the body hasn't healed. And so this thing that is supposed to be beautiful and a way of life, it becomes traumatic. It becomes a fight every step of the way. And you have women that are not being listened to when they say that they're in pain, when they say that something doesn't feel right. Well, my textbook tells me that's not a symptom. So you're making it up. It's heartbreaking to believe that even now in 2023, when they assess us medically, there are still assessments that equate our race as a part of the equation. So it's like, oh, well, because you're Black, you know, this is the scale that we should use as opposed to, no, this person is telling me that they're in pain. They're telling me that this feels tender. They're telling me that something feels off their entire pregnancy. They felt fine. And today they woke up and they just don't feel right, but they can't put it into words. So then as a medical professional, you should ask those questions to get to it because sometimes that I feel off, I don't feel right. It could be something serious that you can't see. It could be, you know, some, some internal bleeding or a blood clot yeah. that got brushed off because mm -hmm. they present as fine. And this is something which I'm, I'm a little torn on. Like the ER is for emergencies. And so they have to rank the the emergencies. And so someone that has a sprain as opposed to someone that has a gunshot wound, like you can't yeah. treat them the same. And so I get that. But also when you're pregnant, sometimes your symptoms aren't going to be gushing blood, but they're still just as detrimental and fatal to you and your child. And that gets overlooked because they look at you and you're not the one gushing blood. And so I get why they have that, that rank. But unfortunately for a lot of pregnant women, when we have unseen things going on that you just can't see with the naked eye, it can turn out to be fatal. 
so you said a mouthful there because there's a lot to unpack. Oh, but I just want to thank you. No, that's fine. I, I appreciated every bit of it. But I just wanted to say, you know, thank you for your transparency and your testimony and your willingness to, to share what you did about your own experience. And I'm sure that that has contributed to this decision to undertake yeah. this, this business and support women and birthing people at this time. But a lot to think about, honestly. Like you said, the way that policies are written, the way that our system is structured, and even going into, which I'll probably dig into in a moment, but looking at the education that people are receiving from, you know, from a medical standpoint, or just all of our leaders across the board, like look at the people that we have, and then who are, who's teaching, what are they teaching, and then what are the, the sort of biases that are embedded in the information that's going for, and how does that perpetuate the issues that we see in birthing like in the, in the disparities in birthing in the U.S. So the fact that one in U.S., you mentioned that all birthing people are more likely to have medical concerns here, but then it's worse even for black and brown people. That alone is a problem. And it's unfortunate that we haven't adjusted any of our processes to sort of address this. And it's really, it's an epidemic. I know that in the 1619 yeah. Project uh, documentary that Nicole Hannah-Jones did, and I'm still in the process of watching, but I think the second yeah. episode of it talks about uh, Black maternal health specifically. Um, and so that's a great resource if people are interested in learning more about it. But what you shared is spot on. And yeah. clearly we need Mo at home. And clearly <laughs> we need, you know, these supports in place in our community. And we need more education around it in a lot of spaces. Yeah. There's another documentary on Hulu called Aftershock that also addresses um, the maternal health uh, epidemic in the black and brown communities. And it was really good, but it is a tearjerker. So you need to make sure you have your Kleenex. And it was it was good in a bittersweet way because they did such a good job talking about the crisis and everything that goes into it. But it shouldn't be something that we have to have a documentary on. And so it's heartbreaking. And so without giving too much away, but there was a interview with one of the ladies and she said that she experienced, I believe it was her daughter, that unfortunately passed away and she was like and I worked in this field and it was just eye-opening that like even me being here I still couldn't prevent this like that's how big of a problem it is that even when someone you know is in this field and and they're working and they know that how the system works it's still not enough to protect black and brown birthing people from the system and so for me it was heartbreaking but it was encouraging that like I'm needed because what that means is that it's not enough of us here. Like there's more to be done. As long as this is a problem, um, there's work to be done. And so it, it was just encouraging that, yeah, I'm in the right field and my work matters. Yeah. And your voice in this matters as well, whether it's the hands-on work or just you speaking yeah. up about it matters. And so, yeah, but Aftershock was an amazing uh, documentary as well. But we're getting into deep stuff and it's emotional. So we're going to move on. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Unless you had anything else to add on that. No, I'm good. <laughs> it's a lot to think about. Um, it is. But yeah, like I mentioned, like the healthcare and education and training that we all get, it, there's so many pieces of that. But anyway, so I guess my next question for you is what types of barriers have you faced in your entrepreneurial journey? Because I know I have seen a lot in my own personal journey. <laughs> so I'm no. just kind of curious what your experience has been. Right now, I think at this stage, I'm probably my biggest barrier because I am still new and getting the ball rolling. And so I have to get out of my way, that imposter syndrome, that perfectionist. I have to tell them like, you don't, don't get a seat at this table. <laughs> you, you can't even be in the building <laughs> because they will come in and they will knock all the chairs down and no one else will have a seat at the table. And so it has really just been getting out of my way and saying that fear or not, like this is the next step and I'm going to take it and just putting myself out there, uh, which is really scary because I don't like to fail publicly. Nobody um, does, trust me. And when you put yourself out there, like that's what happens because success comes after failure. And my, my trivia loving daughter loves to tell me that like chocolate chip cookies were a failure. And so one of like America's greatest snacks <laughs> and treats was not supposed to be that. It was a failed attempt at something else. I can't remember what it was, brownies or bread or something. But um, yeah, like just remembering that, that like, even if I fail, it's okay. It's a part of the journey. So yeah, putting myself out there and looking for the opportunities to uh, to be a help to people and to grow. Um, 
That's been my biggest barrier right now. Um, I think that right now there's a spotlight on like women business and <laughs> small businesses and black owned businesses. So I think I'm getting in at the right time where like I can connect and, and there's opportunities as I get further along and I get to those points where I need those opportunities and, th and things. I have been really blessed that, again, another affirmation that I'm walking in my purpose, people have been like placed in my life, like on the outskirts that I've been able to glean from and get a lot of good information and advice and guidance. So I don't have to do this alone. Whereas a few years ago, it probably would have, based on my circle at that time, it probably would have been really hard for me to branch out as an entrepreneur and a mom uh, at, you know, at that, because I didn't have access to people that like I could tap into to get that guidance and, and get those connections. Whereas now I do. And I know you connected with Jenny to Devereaux. Yes. Uh, <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> She's amazing. John Nita. Yes. And I love her. She's like the biggest cheerleader ever, but she definitely is very resourceful and definitely has connected yeah. me. I'm sure you as well with a lot of resources. And that's been amazing. Um, you know, yeah. so shout out to Rise the Bloom with John Nita. Yes. And I just want to say too, that in that barrier of like me being my biggest barrier, um, one of the things that I have been intentional about is seeking out um, people that are where I want to be. So that's why the shift in my circle, even on the outskirts, because I've been intentional of like, this is what I want to do. This is where I'm going. Like who can help me and trying to find that. Yeah. So I think that that's a big thing too, is just making sure you're seeking that out. Yeah. Just, one of the, one of the quotes I came across uh, in my journey was that not everyone has a ticket to your next level. And mm. I really, you know, had to look at that and see that, in a different light, because sometimes the people that you totally expected to be there are not the ones that get to go along for that ride. It's bittersweet at times, but at the same time, it shows that you're growing and that you're developing and that you are being intentional about the work that you're doing. So despite yeah. the challenges that come with building a better circle, I think it yeah. is a necessary, a necessary thing to do. Yes. Since we're on the topic of barriers and our show focuses on education <laughs> and all that good stuff. I want to talk a little bit about your own educational experience as a K through 12 student. What was that oh. like? What moments stand out in your memory or shaped your advocacy that you do today? So, uh, and just think back, I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, but I skipped kindergarten and seventh grade. Um, I didn't know I, I was with a nerd. Go. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm a nerd, but I ended up having to repeat the seventh grade because I had already skipped kindergarten. It was already like a year behind all my peers. And so socially, they just didn't think that it would be good for me to skip another grade. I, to this day, still disagree. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so that was, that's kind of what looms over when I think of my experience as a K through 12 student is just that. I was always the youngest in my class, but I was always up until seventh grade, uh, the second seventh grade, I was mm -hmm. the top of my class. And just like, even though that was like, I was like teacher's pet, best student ever. Um, I hated school. My mom really? loves to tell stories about how uh, getting me to school in the morning was like a whole thing. They wow. like, I cried over outfits. Um, I cried in the car. They get me in the building and it was like a race. You have to get to the car before I got to the car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> could wow. Otherwise, I was running off the school building. Now, um, see, wait a minute. I was on the nerd tip with you, but I wasn't like hating school in this way. So what was going on <laughs> in school? So I think it was just not really feeling like I belonged. So mm -hmm. because I was the youngest and I was the smartest, I was the bookworm. No one really wanted to be my friend. No one really wanted... Like even the smart kids were in competition with me. And so they, you know, they were my friend because we were smart, but they didn't like me because they thought I was smarter than them. And I, I think everybody is smart in their own way. So this idea that, that someone's smarter, I think that you just haven't probably, it hasn't been tapped into how to reach you the best way because we're different learners. My mom was extremely hard on me. And so anything less than an A++ just wasn't an option in her household. Wow. wow. <laughs> um, and so it's just like, but I didn't like school because um, no one likes the smart kid. <laughs> yeah. So when I was in sixth grade, I was in a, a mixed level class and it was like, so they were teaching us at the seventh grade and it was like sixth and seventh graders and 
oh, we're all doing seventh grade work. And so then they passed on my other fellow sixth graders, but they wouldn't pass me on. And so one of my teachers sent my records to a magnet school and had me apply. And then I was also picked to study abroad in England. And when they found out my age, they were like, oh, well, it's going to be a bunch of 13, 14 year olds. She's not old enough. And I asked my mom this recently because she, she was super protective. I was like, you let your 11-year-old daughter go to England for two weeks before cell phones were a thing. I had to have a calling card to call internationally. Yeah, I've and been I'm there. And I'm like, why? Like, <laughs> It's an opportunity, this, though. I would go for it, personally. But Yeah, I was like, but you wouldn't. I'm like, I couldn't spend a night at, at my friend's house. I couldn't ride public transportation, but I went to England. And so she said, you know, I wasn't going to. But when they came back and said that they weren't going to let you, I was like, oh, no, that's not an option. Like, you didn't already told her that she could. And now you're trying to take it away for something like her age. So she said she has to fight. And at that point, once she fought, she was like, it's the principal now. Like, as much yeah. as I don't want my baby to go, <laughs> it's the principal. And so I'm really thankful and grateful for that. But when I came back, I ended up missing like the first week of school. And I had a teacher that had an issue with the fact that I, as an 11-year-old, went to England. And so he made my time in his classroom horrible. And he just bullied me. Wow. And I have instances of that, like, all the way through high school where, like, I had some I had some really amazing teachers. My English teacher, I was fortunate enough to have her all four years. And she really instilled the love of writing in me. Because when I came to her class, I was going to be a psychiatrist. And I left the right okay. <laughs> little shift in the major there but. <laughs> a, a huge shift <laughs> but she was amazing but then I had some teachers that weren't amazing and so yeah. in general I didn't like school I, I didn't like the bullying how teachers it seemed to me as a kid would pick and choose who they rallied behind um I had I know other people that I love that were were bullied pretty horribly and I watched schools not do anything I watched teachers not teach students the basics and how that set them up for failure and then now we want to put a label on them and say that they're special ed and they're this and that but really a teacher just didn't teach them the basics I've seen people slack off all year take a standardized test and then now they get to go into the next grade and then I've seen people do really well and then they not do well on a standardized test and have like mental breakdowns from from that and so like yeah school was easy for me but it was all of the the politics and the logistics that like I I was just aware of at a very young age and so I, I didn't like school I love yeah. to read love knowledge didn't like school <laughs> that's amazing but that sort of dichotomy that you're talking about where I love the information and the idea of learning and bettering myself but I don't like the challenges that are presented to me or that are you know even directly you know, created by teachers or yeah. that part makes it very hard. And so I've had very similar experience in terms of the good or the bad teacher. I don't think there were a lot of middle of the road teachers. I typically had excellent teachers or <laughs> horrible teachers, you know, and I've had um, those that choose not to call on you um, in class and then give you a bad grade for participation when you're like, I'm sitting here with my hand up, you know? Yeah. And there were days where I'm like looking at my hand in the air. It's up there, right? Like it was, yeah. And yeah. She's just ignoring me at this point. And then I get a C in the class. You know, I've I've had, you know, a lot of that experience with the bullying that you mentioned as well. And that's that's unfortunate. I think um, we really need to overhaul our system. I'm not even going to get into that here. But <laughs> there's a lot of problems in our educational system right now. Yeah. And there's so much uh, we have to contend with. Even leaving your identity outside of the, the classroom, you know, in a lot of cases, you can't bring it into the classroom because who you are yeah. is not not welcome here. Yeah, yeah. And when we're talking about identity, like I, I know right now, like race is the buzzword. So when you say identity, people automatically think that's what you're talking about. But even I think about kids, how we are training them to all learn a certain way and to be a certain way, and they don't get to bring their identity. They don't get to bring their um, identity as a kid that as a visual learner or as a auditory learner they have to be however the teacher decides to give the information yeah. kids that learn through movement and can't sit still like they're they're labeled problem children they don't get to bring that identity into the classroom yeah. and I get that as a homeschooler of three kids my experience is a lot different than a teacher that has mm -hmm. to teach 
30 something kids. And so again, that's when it goes back to like the system needs to be um, overhauled. But it breaks my heart that so much of like the genius in kids get squeezed out. Actually, that's kind of leading into what I was going to ask you. So one of the questions I had was about biggest challenges you see in contemporary education. But I think in addition to that, you know, what influenced your decision to homeschool your daughters? The pandemic, like so many people, schools came home and and I told you I had to quit my job to stay home with them when the schools closed and they were virtual learning. But then fall came and our school, which is is pretty awesome. My girls are in private school and then we switched them to public school and then the pandemic happened. So they weren't in there a really long time, but we picked where we live based on the reputation of the school district and the school and friends that we know that had kids from there, like lots of praise reports. So it, it was a pretty... I feel like we were pretty fortunate. And even when they did virtual, I didn't have any problems. I know a lot of people were like, oh, uh, the virtual was horrible. Um, the only issue I had was with the the Zoom because my two daughters were back to back and there wasn't even like a, a five minute like grace period. And it's like, there could be no talking and everybody has to be quiet. And my husband's working from home. I got two girls and then I have a newborn. So uh, just logistically, I was like, I don't want to, I know our home situation. I don't want to put my girls in a situation where like they're going to be in trouble for factors outside of their control. At the expectation is that parents aren't on the Zoom to protect other kids' privacy, but I have to walk past them to um, go to the kitchen or to the bathroom or what have you. I I don't want that to hurt my child. You know, if there's noise in the background, I don't want them to get dinged. They told us that if they were like a minute late, they would be locked out and be marked absent for the day. And I was like, tech issues on the Zoom, like, yeah, like I have a newborn. So like just me trying to manage three kids by myself, mm-hmm. there might be days where we're early and there might be days where we're late. And on those days that we're late, I don't want a truancy officer calling me because my kid was marked absent. Being on, a, on the other side, how much they actually adhere to those policies and it played out the way that they said it would be, I think might be questionable, but it was just a lot of anxiety. Like um, they didn't know if they were going to do hybrid or how that would look. And if you had the option to switch, it was like, are we making this commitment for the year, a few months at a time? If you don't get enough people that sign up for one or the other, like, does, is that option still going to be available? Like, teacher-wise, how are you doing this? And they didn't have the answers to that. And so I said, it's an experiment there. So we'll homeschool as an experiment. (laughs) Like either way, the whole country is in an experiment right now. And so that's, that's what led to homeschooling. It was simply because of the pandemic and trying to figure it out and trying to do what was best for our family. But we loved it. We had a great time. Um, Once we started homeschooling, I did my deep dive into the research. And again, another God thing. Like the week that we decided that we were going to homeschool, I'm on Facebook and an ad pops up for a homeschool together conference or back to homeschool or something. (laughs) I forget what it was called, but it was put on by this organization called the Melanin Village, which is an online community for Black homeschooling mamas. And I was like, I don't know if this thing is real or not. So um, the conference was free. So I was like, okay, I'm going to sign up, but you know, we'll see. And it was a lot of good information. I took so many notes and it's still things that I like apply in our homeschool today. And I was like, okay, maybe I'll join because this is, this was good, but I still wasn't sure about it. And then we started like connecting and I started seeing the other moms and like, oh, these are real people. Like this is a real thing. (laughs) (laughs) And the community and the training that we get, like, cause it, um, there were videos that we could look at that had all of the different topics, like you homeschool while working from home or how to teach math, how to create a routine, how to handle discipline, how to homeschool multiples, all of that. And now we're communicating with each other and we're connecting. And so now you have people that look like you. Like I have friends now that homeschool, but when I started out, I was the only one. And so uh, we just had so much fun. And when the year was up, I wasn't ready to go back. The girls weren't ready to go back. So... Now we're just in it, having fun. Amazing. I don't know that that was my experience during COVID. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, ooh, can't wait. No, no, it wasn't so bad. I think, you know, the things you talked about also experiencing at home, being able to put your kids online and not having as many challenges in terms of the connectivity and the access to the content. I worry about those who experienced the digital divide and weren't able to access classes, content, et cetera. And then they get pushed behind Um, when they return to school, they're behind their peers. You know, those kinds of things are more concerning. And that's probably where the 
the bulk of my attention was. Um, yeah. In our household, um, my spouse is a system administrator, has worked in computers and whatnot for many years. And so he was able to get them connected. I obviously have a background in education. So I set up their workspaces and we were yeah. good, but, but I still couldn't wait for the moment when, you know, they were like, y'all can send them back now. I was, <laughs> I was ready <laughs> for that part. So it didn't turn into a homeschooling experience for me, per yeah. se. Uh, <laughs> so, well, so that's a legit question I had for you. Like, wait, what, why are you doing this? Because no, it was, I probably enjoy it more than my girls do. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think it's, again, one of those things that like, you just found, like, it's not for everybody, but I found yeah. this thing that I really enjoy. And I'm fortunate enough where my husband was able to support us financially so that this could be a thing. Because for a lot of people, they want to, they have the passion, but they have to work. Um, And also I quit my job so that I could homeschool the girls. And so the pressure of like, I have meetings, but my kids have like, they need my help. I didn't have that. I was able to give them my full attention. And again, the nerd in me, I still love learning. So when we decided to homeschool and we decided to tailor it to our interests, and we're going to deep dive into that, the activities and the topics that are important to them, which is something that I had learned from their private school, like um, student-led learning. And so I, I knew that that was something that I wanted to continue in our homeschool. And now I'm getting to see like my kids, what motivates them, what they're interested in. And some of it was interesting to me. So now I get to learn right alongside them. And so I think it was just a perfect storm for me. But I I also know that we are blessed and in a position where there's a lot of things that we can take advantage of. I don't follow a curriculum because I try to do as much free and low cost stuff as possible. (laughs) And curriculums, they get expensive. And then to find out that it doesn't work for your child. And so that was one of the first things that I was told was like, before you commit to a curriculum, figure out how your child learns and how you teach and then find the curriculum that works with that. Um, And then, you know, you can get curriculum from the library. So I'm glad I learned that very early on as a follower. thousands of dollars later yeah um, then we would not be homeschooling I know right (laughs) like a game over (laughs) but yeah the the digital divide too and I think for us uh, we live in an area where we have a lot of outside resources and so we're able to take our learning offline and go to museums go to the park and be a part of different activities and events that are also learning and but we rely heavily online too and so I know for a lot of kids that that was a thing too, that like, they just weren't set up. And I mean, school's closed, but like a 24 hour notice, like it it was hard for them to equip kids. But also I want to highlight the part that I feel like doesn't get a a lot of attention. And that is that there are a lot of kids that thrived with remote. Um, And because whatever was going going on in that brick and mortar classroom Mm -hmm. that was stopping them from reaching their potential, they were able to do that in an online environment and the safety of their home. And so I think, again, it just speaks to the fact that it's not a one size fits all model. And we keep trying to force kids in a one size fits all model. Definitely. I'm thinking about like trans youth and a lot of of students, maybe who experience bullying or being pushed out of classrooms or not, you know, being able to bring their full identity into the space. Like we talked about, whether that's their learning identity, uh, their racial identity, any other type of their expression of who they are. When you're not able to bring that into the educational setting, it becomes a burden similar to what you talked about in your own experience. And it's uncomfortable and you can't learn because it's not an optimal situation for you. And so like yeah. you said, many people did thrive that way. I was just kind of like, uh, yeah, we need to put them back in. Yeah. Um, but I definitely do a lot of supplemental education. You know, we do that in our family and in our household. Yeah. Um, and so what we what we do is typically, you know, visit museums or um, travel with our children and expose them to other cultures and things like that. But that's also coming in at, from a privileged standpoint on that, right? So certain yeah. things that we're able to do have been great. Um, but I wish that more people had access to that, to those opportunities yeah. and to the same uh, sort of outside of school learning. And and yeah. I make my boys, we, we essentially, I won't say we homeschool, but in the summertime, they get, they get, they <laughs> get, <laughs> refuse I'll to accept this term. You. Listen, I'm not taking this term on. I see what you're doing, but <laughs> they do get, they get assignments and they get plenty of work here at the house. Um, just because I'm like, you're going to continue to learn and you're going to keep building on what we're doing. So I don't homeschool. I, I refuse. <laughs> okay. But yeah. Um, <laughs> what'd you say? You culture school. Yeah, we definitely do a little supplementing. I, I can say that. And we have always, that's always been very important. So yeah. 
Um, I like that you do that though. And it sounds like it's been successful. So that's great, you know, for both yeah. all of you. So I guess, you know, we've talked a little bit about the environment that you experienced in the schools and how yeah. your way of learning maybe wasn't accepted always, or the, the experiences you brought to the classroom weren't always welcome. When did you realize that your culture and our language was different from the quote unquote mainstream? I, I was probably in high school. So uh, I experienced colorism all my life. Okay, quick definition for those who may be unfamiliar. The term colorism refers to discrimination based on skin tone, usually against individuals within a racial or ethnic group. Colorism is a consequence of white supremacy, colonization, and slavery. While colorism as a system typically favors those with lighter skin tones, it can also be used to call into question one's belonging to a specific racial or ethnic group if a person's skin is perceived to be much lighter than that of others within their group. So I was different from my family's mainstream. I was, I was a nerd. I was extremely light-skinned. And so I didn't have any rhythm. So I was just white all around. Oh, no. <laughs> Um, Not the rhythm piece. Yeah, um, they oh. didn't hesitate to tell me that. And so I I spent like all my childhood just like chasing, trying to be black enough. And I failed. But <laughs> I lived in a bad neighborhood and I knew it was a bad neighborhood. Um, like I, I didn't play in my backyard. I, I didn't walk around. I didn't take public transportation. I was only allowed to ride my, my bike in the alley from like one end of my yard to the other end of my yard. So. <laughs> I wasn't going very far and I knew that it was a bad neighborhood, but my family came. So it was what it was. Um, but then once I got to high school and, you know, start having friends and crushes and all of that, the black people didn't want to come to my neighborhood and they would be like, oh no, we don't go over there. Like that, that's bad. And so then I started realizing that like, oh, I live in the hood for real. So now I'm at a school where there are other races. And if my own race doesn't want to come here because they think it's bad, then like these other people probably don't want to either. And then because, like I said, I was always called the white girl in my family. I kind of had this idea of what was considered Black. Yeah. Um, and so... Anything that I felt was considered Black, I now felt was like not safe for like the okay. outside world. And so, I don't know, it, it was just weird. Um, it was born out of like my own family circle. But as I started venturing into the world, I was made aware that like there were certain things I liked that were outside of what my culture said was acceptable. So then that meant that like, whatever was within my culture probably wouldn't be accepted in other cultures and outside. And so started playing both sides. Yeah. And that's really, that's a hard position to be in where you don't quite fit or belong in either. Yeah. And so you have been very helpful in that though. Oh, like, I'm like, wait, how was I helpful in? Okay. <laughs> I had a similar like, experience, but I'm just trying to figure out where have we talked about this? But we actually it. haven't, but like, the respected dialect group and social media pages has just really kind of affirmed in me to like stand proud in my culture. And like now uh, black nerd culture is a thing. And my, my husband and I talk about this all the time. They're like, we were nerds when it wasn't cool. And now that yeah. it's cool, people are like, you're not nerdy enough. Like you can't. No. <laughs> I so still really say like, I am a nerd and I'm good, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So we like laugh and joke about that, but like in that trying to find our place, we are black. We grew up in the hood, and like even if we're on the outskirts of what like in the '90s black culture deemed acceptable uh, to be like black and black, it's still parts of us that we can't deny because our interests put us in circles outside of our race. We've had to code switch and we've had to mask, and so to like see. Uh, social media pages that are like talking about like how it is a dialect and it's something that should be respected and then now you have the crown act and it's like our hair is beautiful and we should be allowed like legally to wear it it's just like okay I don't have to code switch and I can stand firm in my identity and it is okay for me to be a mixture of these two places because one is not necessarily better than the other uh, despite what anybody might say. And so every time like I see a post from Respected Dialect, I'm like, yes. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. <laughs> like, I'm glad it's helpful. I was, because when you were saying what you were about moving between spaces yeah. and having to fit into different cultures, that all resonates. And I understand yeah. where you're coming from there. Um, but I was like, I don't remember having a conversation. <laughs> but, nope. but yeah, online, definitely. Um, 
speak up a lot about that. And I think that's so important. So I, I just appreciate you for, you're always active too in the groups online, which I love. <laughs> like in the business turning point, like you yeah. comment all the time. The rest of the people I think are silent and I don't understand, but that's how we are. I guess that's yeah. the culture right now of that group. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, like you said, it's so important to affirm and to understand that your identity is valid because so much in our society tells us it's not. So yeah. much in our society, even like you said, in our families too, so much tells us that our identity isn't adequate and it won't work and it won't be successful or it won't fit into spaces. And it does. It's just fine. Yes. So it does. Awesome. So. I love it. Okay. So <laughs> before we end, I want to ask, do you have any advice, final thoughts for our audience regarding education, service delivery, maternal health, anything uh, for culturally and linguistically diverse populations? Um, I would say just like stand in your truth. Um, and I know that that probably sounds really cliche and it's definitely easier said than done. But when you really know who you are and you can stand in your truth, then you can advocate for yourself. It becomes apparent when people are trying to box you in versus there being legitimate concerns. And sometimes, you know, there are legitimate concerns and it and they're uncomfortable and you have to do things that you don't want to do. But when you know who you are, then you know the questions to ask and you know the things to say so that you can kind of discern um, what's legitimate and what somebody's bias coming out to play. And so I just really encourage people know who you are, be proud of where you come from and stand in your truth. Thank you. I'll give you a moment if you'd like to share where people can connect with you or Mo at Home, social media handles, any of that. If you'd like to connect with Mo at Home LLC and just learn more about uh, childbirth and uh, the journey and what to expect and resources available, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and my website, um, moathome.life. They're all the same. The handles are the same for social media and the website. And that's M-O-A-T-H-O-M-E dot life. And then if you are interested in my homeschool journey, you can follow us at Learning 5 on Instagram. Well, thank you so much for being a guest. It's been a pleasure as always talking to you and just sharing ideas and knowledge. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Okay. Y'all know we sporadic AF with these episodes. So go ahead and subscribe to our show so you're notified as soon as we drop something new. Like what you've heard? Be sure to give us five stars. Thanks again to Taja Sparkman for being a guest and a special shout out to Rise to Bloom with Janita Devereaux for her awesome business building support. 